morning, church. It's good to see you all. We're going to be doing something a little bit different this morning, and so we're going to go ahead and dismiss kids now. Um, And so if you're heading to classes, you guys can go do that. Sorry that you sat down before we announced that. Um, If you have turned on the TV or scrolled your phone any time over the past eight days, you've you've seen what has proven to be uh, the most horrific um, news that we've heard in some time, Um, and really just the most horrific attack uh, that we've seen on earth in, in decades. And this, <clears throat> this act of terror, kind of leaving the details out, has escalated into an all-out war with thousands of lives lost. And so this morning, <clears throat> we're going to do something a bit different. If you haven't noticed sort of the mood, even just in the song choices and um, just trying to not fabricate, fabricate, but create an environment of lament, and of, of grief um, as, we, as we process and consider and grieve over all that has happened and is happening currently as we sit here in this church. And so we're just going to do that very thing. We're going to pause for a few minutes to lament and to grieve and really to, to, to devote the entirety of the morning to, to this. Uh, we're going to pause <clears throat> on Malachi for the morning. We'll pick that uh, back up next week, but sometimes in the life of a church, uh, there are seasons where we just feel as though it is necessary and good, and the Holy Spirit prompts us to to pause. And we can't do it all the time because there's so much happening in the world at any given time that if we did that, we would never be able to get through whatever it is that we're in. But there are also really unique times in the in 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 in, in the life of a church where we assess what's happening in the world. And the leadership needs to pause for the purposes of lament and prayer. Uh, this week I was in touch with, with Rabbi Fetter over at uh, Temple Israel, where actually our, her kids go to the same school as our kids do. And, um, and so we, we're interacting back and forth. And one of the uh, hardest things to read in her response back to me was, it feels like so much of the world is silent right now. It feels like, because so, nobody knows what to say or what to do. Or, and so as Christians, uh, our silence needs to convert to crying out to God, to pleading for God to heal his land, to using our, as Emily said, our words. We use our words to encourage and to support and to grieve with those who are grieving. And so this morning, that's what we're going to do. In the Jewish culture, there's this concept um, that I've always found really fascinating called sitting shiva. And to sit shiva, it comes from the word shiva, uh, which means seven, signifying seven days of grieving. And so what you would do is if, if somebody in your life uh, was close to somebody who passed away, and you just wanted to express your support, 
you would go sit shiva with them, and oftentimes it would last for seven days. So, and, and you, in your support, you, you wouldn't say anything. You would just sit and be present with them in their grief. And you couldn't actually speak until they spoke. And so there were no words of like, hey, I'm here for you, or you would just be. You would just be present. And there was also a memorial candle that was lit. And so this morning, we're going to sit Shiva, if you will, for a few moments, uh, even now, as we lament. What we're going to do is we're going to light a candle that is up here in front uh, to symbolically represent what we believe the world, as Christians, what we believe the world needs most. It's the hope and the light of God in the world. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 18:28, you Lord, keep my lamp burning. And then he says, I love this. My God turns my darkness into light. Would you not agree that the people who are enduring what they're enduring right now need that hope? My God will turn my darkness into light. And so we lament and we grieve on behalf of lives that have been taken. We grieve war. We grieve cycles of violence and conflict that seem to never go away. We also ask God to turn darkness into light. And we also plead with God to come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come and heal your land. Author, just to give us a little, just some help here in how to lament. Because I think oftentimes in situations like this, we kind of sit there and go, oh, do I just say some words to God in my heart? Or let, let me just give you um, some, some ideas. Um, and I don't know if we have these up on the screen or not, but <clears throat> author Mark uh, Rogop wrote an article years ago on the Gospel Coalition on lament. And he offers sort of four movements to lament out of Psalm 13. Um, and so here are the four. Uh, number one, you just turn to God. And that's in Psalm 13, 1. Um, Often a lament begins by just addressing God. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? The point is that the person in pain chooses to walk, to, sorry, to talk to God about what is happening. And so you just turn to God, number one. Number two, you bring your complaint. So after you turn to him, you turn your face towards him, you bring your complaint. And that's out of Psalm 13 too. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my, in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? That's Psalm 13 too. Number three, you ask boldly for help. And so you turn to God, you bring your complaint, you ask boldly for help. Psalm 13, three and four. Consider and answer me. O oh Lord, my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So you ask boldly for God to come and to heal, to help. And then lastly, you choose to trust. And so you turn to God, you bring your complaint, you ask boldly for help, and then this is, this is the destination of your lament, this is, the, the, this is the, the, the goal of your lament. This is the aim of your lament, and that is trust, choosing to trust. Psalm 13, 5 and 6 says, But I have trusted, after all that, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully 
with me. And so let's just do that now. We're just going to pause for a few moments to take time to lament for Israel as they heal from these terrorist attacks. We're going to lament and grieve for Gaza as they are displaced as a result of the response for brothers and sisters in Christ, many of whom are kids um, who are in the throes of some of the scariest days they have ever experienced as we sit here. And so let's do that now. I'm going to light the candle. And uh, church, I would just encourage you to lament for a few moments here for what is happening. Lord, we believe because of Jesus' finished work, because of Jesus' finished work, completed work, a crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language will stand in front of the throne and before Jesus, converted Jews and Gentiles together, clothed in Jesus' righteousness, one beloved bride, one gloriously redeemed people, one forever family populating the new heaven and the new earth. That will happen. We long for that day. Father, we pray for an end to the war in and against Israel. It's exactly the same prayer we pray for Ukraine or any other brutal conflict on earth that affects your good creation and especially your people made in your image for good purposes. In the middle of all the evil and all the terrorism, would you bring Jews, Russians, Iranians, Ukrainians, Turks, Americans of every nation, would you bring them to the sure and saving knowledge of Jesus? our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the strong and saving name of Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen. So here's, here's the plan for the next few minutes. Um, just to bring some, some context to uh, what's happening, and I, I think that there's, there's often confusion in times like this, and the goal of the morning is just to bring maybe some some clarity biblically as to uh, 
uh, how we not only are to view what is happening, but also to um, respond as Christians when global devastations are occurring. We often, would you agree, feel sort of like, well, what, what does that have to do with me? And also, like, wh- how should I respond in times like this? And we feel lost. And so the hope for the morning is that we can just give, give some, some helps there. Um, so if you've ever opened your Bible, which I would assume most everyone in this room has, you even just once, you've probably seen the word Israel as it shows up um, 2,228 times in the Old Testament and 73 times in the New Testament. It's kind of a big deal to God, right? And he has used the people of Israel for thousands of years as his chosen people to not only be a God-fearing group who follow in his ways, but he also used the land. The land was not insignificant, but rather very central to his purposes for creating for himself a set-apart holy people that would be a blessing. Um, Now, the the Jews had three things um, that if you removed even one of them, there would be a really big problem. And it was God, Torah, and land. God, Torah, and land. Um, even when, when, even when, when they were exiled, they were, they were always working to get back to their, to their homeland. Um, and so here is, here is what we're not doing today. Um, let me just kind of get this out there. Like, we... I'm not going to get into the, the geopolitics of this or even like modern day Christian arguments on whether that should still be happening today, that the land should still be a factor in all of this. We're not going to get into that. The, like the opining of a non-Jewish, Anglo, middle-aged American pastor is just not what the world needs right now, okay? And so I'm not, that's not why I'm here. It's not why we're here. Um, there are different theologies and interpretations in the Bible of this, and if it fascinates you, I, I seriously would encourage you, because that's what I spent my entire week doing, I seriously would encourage you to go and do the hard work and the research on the subject before coming to any conclusions. Um, but again, that's not the purpose of this message. The purpose of this message is going to be simple. What do we know to be true about Israel? Um, like, just roll out some facts, um, even some having to do with what's happening now in this conflict. And then look to the Bible to see what, like, what does Israel, if anything, have to do with the church today? What does Israel, if anything, have to do with the church today? And the rationale for this message is quite simple. Clearly, clearly Israel is special to God. Clearly Israel is special to God. And if it's special to God or it matters to God, it should matter to you, to us, to Christians. And so we begin with just a few things we do know. Uh, we, we know that Israel as a people and as a, as a nation is a significant part, if, again, if you just read two thirds of your Bible, right, that's actually all of this, you're going to find it, okay? And so is a significant part of the story of God. The Bible is not, and this is where we get hung up oftentimes, like the Bible is not 66 different stories, but rather one story, and of the eight binding covenants he made with humans, five were with Israel, four of those were unconditional, the Mosaic Covenant being conditional. Um, one of those is actually a land covenant that you can read about all about it in Deuteronomy chapter 30. It's a land covenant. We do know that there were uh, two political units in Israel, uh, the United Kingdom of Israel under Saul, David, and Solomon, and then the Northern Kingdom that, com- that comprised 10 of the tribes, not Judah or Benjamin. 
that was established by Jeroboam after he revolted. Uh, the southern kingdom was then referred to as Judah. Uh, we know that uh, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, who we center everything around in this church, we do know that Jesus Christ was Jewish and was born in Israel, just 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, we do know that uh, the Jews are called a nation more than 100 times in the Bible, not just a religion. Uh, that's like why they're, they're can be irreligious Jews, if that makes sense, because Jews are both a people, a nation, and a religion. This is why like, you can't be um, an atheist Christian, because Christianity is only a religion, not a people. Make sense? Uh, we do know that there has always been, com- always been conflict in the Middle East, specifically surrounding the topic of Israel's land and the Jews' desire to have a Jewish state. We do know that Hamas is an, is, is an Islamic terror group, officially called the Islamic Resistance Movement, that uses the policy of jihad against Israel and wants to destroy completely off the face of the earth Israel. The Hamas motto is actually, we love death as our enemies love life. We love death as our enemies love life. We know they broke through the Gaza-Israeli border last weekend to massacre Civilians attack Israeli military bases, behead and burn kids, rape and murder women, and in, in, in the very literal sense of the word demonic, that is exactly what occurred. Um, we know there are upwards of 50,000 Christians living in Gaza currently, and there are upwards of 185,000 Christians living in Israel. We know also that all of these men, women, and children, even the ones who attacked, hard to say those words, even the ones who did the atrocity were made by God for good purposes and by their free will, many have opted to reject the one true God. We know that to be true. What we don't know exactly, and this this list is shorter, what we don't know exactly, we don't know what Israel has to do with God's redemptive purposes today, necessarily. Different theologies, again, like dispensationalism, that that every promise made by God to the Jews will one day come to pass. Um, And replacement theology, again, you can read all about these different positions and theologies. Uh, We also don't know exactly what Israel has to do with the church today. We don't exactly know where that lands. We just know that this part of the world is burning and that it's a part of the world that Jesus knows well, loves, and used for thousands of years and is important to him. And so we should take time to consider it as well and to do this work. So let's do that for a few minutes. Um, about a decade ago, <clears throat> a man uh, named Keith Matheson, who worked uh, closely with R.C. Sproul uh, before R.C. passed away, uh, wrote an article on Israel and the church. And he begins with the question, what is the relationship between, between Israel and the church. Um, and he goes on to say this, when you read the Old Testament from Jacob to the exile, the people of God is Israel, and Israel is the people of God. <clears throat> when we turn to the New Testament, the same story continues, and Israel is still in the picture. <clears throat> Jesus is actually described as the one who will be given the throne of his father David, and the one who will reign over the house of Jacob, Israel, forever. That's in Luke chapter 1, 22, 32, and 33. He is presented as the one the prophets foresaw. The first to believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah are Israelites. 
Andrew, Peter, James, and John. But in the Gospels, we also, this is where it gets a little bit confusing, we also hear um, that Jesus is like speaking of, of building this thing called the church. And we see tension between the leaders of Israel and Jesus. We see lots of tension if you read the Gospels between the leaders of Israel and Jesus. We see Jesus speak of destroying the tenants of the, the tenants of the vineyard and giving it to others. That's in Luke chapter 20. Well, that can be a little bit confusing. What do you do with that? In the book of Acts, the spread of the gospel to the Samaritans and the Gentiles leads to even more conflict with the religious leaders of Israel. And so it might appear as though Israel is being replaced by the church, right? The answer is, yeah, no, it's not that simple. That's really where, where you land, right? Um, because we run across hints that God is not finished with the nation of Israel. At the end of his declaration of woes on the scribes and Pharisees, who Jesus really did not have much good to say about, um, Jesus says, you will not see me again, pay attention to this, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's Matthew 23, 39. In the Olivet Discourse, he speaks of Jerusalem being trampled underfoot until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's in Luke 21, 24. In Acts, Peter says to a Jewish audience, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. That's in Acts chapter 3 to a Jewish audience. Paul says things like, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And then he answers it. He says, by no means. That's in Romans chapter 11. At the time of Jesus' birth, the faithful remnant, like true, true Israel, not just national Israel, true Israel. At the time of Jesus' birth, the faithful remnant included believers such as Simeon and Anna. That's in Acts chapter 2. During Jesus' adult ministry, true Israel was seen in those who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. True Israel was seen in those who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. In other words, those who rejected Jesus were not considered true Israel regardless of their race. This included many of the scribes and Pharisees. And so at this point in history, what Christians believe is that though they're were many like, physical Jews, they, they were not necessarily true Israel. That's in Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29. True Israel became, at this time in Jesus' day, became defined by union with the one true Israelite, Jesus. Paul would actually write to the Galatians. Listen to this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And so on the day of Pentecost, um, the true Israel, Jewish believers in Jesus, was taken up by the Holy Spirit and formed into the New Testament church. It's in Acts chapter 2. The body of Christ. And it blows 
thankfully for most all of us likely in this room, it blows open the door for Gentiles to be grafted into God's redemptive purposes. The Holy Spirit was, 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 at Pentecost was poured out on the true Israel, and the same men and women who are part of this true Israel were now the true covenant church. That's the connection. And so this is extremely significant for you and for me because it explains why there's so much confusion regarding the relationship between the church and Israel. The answer depends on whether we're talking about national Israel or the true Israel. Think about it this way. Even during, like, Old Testament days, there were non-God-fearing, non-God-following Israelites who would not have been considered a part of the true set-apart people of God, the true Israel. It's a fallacy to think at one point every single Israelite was connected to the vine. The same is true today. The same is true today, and watch this. Today, what marks you as, as true Israel or as true church? It's not church attendance or moral uprightness. No, it's the Holy Spirit having awakened your soul, making you alive in Christ. It's what Christ has secured on your behalf. That's what makes you the true church. Faith in Christ alone. And so, as Christians... Our response to this news should not be neutral news. It shouldn't be neutral. Our, our response to this rather should be, thanks be to God that his redemptive plans involved using Israel, his chosen people, to, through faith in Jesus, graft Gentiles, like most all of us, into salvation. Now, if that's what we see in the totality and the entirety as we read all of this, okay, of Scripture, when Israel as a nation is attacked on the scale that it was, just like we would if any other nation that were to, exper were, were to experience an attack, we, we lament and we grieve and we call upon God to heal his land. And in order to do this well, let me just kind of pivot here a little bit. In order to do this well, we need to understand two things, two concepts that I want to kind of walk you through and then give you some ideas. One, common grace, and two, moral clarity. Common grace and two, moral clarity. Let me explain. Uh, Sam Storms defines um, common grace as, as this. I think we have a slide for it. Uh, yep, there it is. As any expression of the goodness of God, every favor, and all gifts that humans use and enjoy naturally short of salvation in him. So in other words, like the, the air you breathe alongside a non-believer, okay? That's just the air. Is, it's just common grace. You both are enjoying, maybe without even thinking about it, the air, right? Flowers, vacations, paychecks, that'd be common grace, the sound of waves, a sunset, chocolate, nachos, taste buds, like you name it, anything, it's just common grace that you get to enjoy alongside somebody who does not profess the name of Jesus, and you can find co commonality with non-believers, right? Common grace, though, tra track with this, it, it's not 
assumed because we know that we will experience hardship in life, right? So it's not assumed. Therefore, it should not be taken for granted, right? Because it's not, it's not guaranteed for all Christians, okay? Now, moral clarity, moral clarity is the recognition that humans not only reject special salvific grace offered by God, but also that at times reject common grace. And when they do, we need to be okay calling it what it is without apology or qualification. We need to be okay calling it what it is without apology or without qualification. And so, for example, when George Floyd was asphyxiated by sustained pressure on his neck, it, would, it was inappropriate at that time to bring up, well, he also, you know, he had some heart issues, and that'd be, in a, that'd be an inappropriate response in that moment. Um, and so the country rose up and went, like, that's wrong. Like, that officer took common grace away from George Floyd. Or when a woman is assaulted, it's inappropriate to go, well, you know, she probably shouldn't have been at the bar that late, or whatever it might have been. But that's inappropriate. We just simply go, that is wrong. It's not how God intended things to work. That shouldn't happen. That's moral clarity, not moral obscurity. Bernard Howard and Ivan Mesa wrote an article on moral clarity, and I just want to read some of it for you. Um, They begin with quoting Gene Bethke, and they say this, "If, if we could not distinguish between an accidental death resulting from a car accident and an intentional murder, our criminal justice system would fall apart. And if we cannot distinguish the killing of combatants from the intended targeting of peaceable civilians, we live in a world of moral nihilism. In such a world, everything reduces to, to the same shade of gray, and we cannot make distinctions that help us, help us take, our political and moral, make our, take our political and moral bearings. He goes on to say, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's moral perceptiveness led him to see the horror of Nazism at a time when many other Christians found the evidence ambiguous. Isn't that fascinating? His strong moral vision brought glory to God, and we follow in his footsteps when we're clear about events we ought to be clear about. Moral clarity produces imperatives, musts and must-nots. To use a non-political example, Paul demanded the church in Corinth, he says this in 1 Corinthians 5, expel the wicked person from among them. The man in question was doing what Christians must not do, and that led to the must of excommunicating him from the local church. That's moral clarity. Clarity regarding Hamas's attacks on Israel allows for imperatives to guide God's people. And so, for example, on Sunday, marchers in a pro-Palestinian rally in New York were chanting, resistance is justified when people are occupied. Now, regardless of where you land on that, it's inappropriate in that moment because it's defending the indefensible, namely murder, rape, and kidnapping. It's not how, as Christians, we weep with those who weep. It's not how we do it. That's not our disposition. It's not our posture. It's not the way of Jesus. And so why bring this up? The the, the last line there is what I want for us to just take the remaining few moments here to focus on. What then is the Christian disposition, the posture we should take in times like this to weep with those who weep, to grieve with those who grieve? 
I would submit the, the true church, the true church, Christian, I want you to think on this, has incredible opportunities to be a city on a hill, to be the light of the world more than ever when devastations come. But we need to get it right. And so I think here's how we get it right. On September 16, 2001, um, the line to get into Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City was, was out the door. Five miles north of the World Trade Center's they could, they could smell the burning buildings and see the posters that were asking for information on the missing people. Pastor Tim Keller added another service on the spot to make room for people who were just wanting to, to meet with, they didn't know where else to go. They didn't know where else to go. They just wanted to meet with God. Normally a church of around 2,800 people, Redeemer that weekend hosted 5,300 worshipers that day. Keller was preaching his way through Jonah, but he stepped out of the series to open John chapter 11, 1 through 44. And that's a whole sermon in and of itself. You can go find it online. Um, but if you don't know the flow of those verses, here it is. Mary and Martha, kind of in some categories. Mary and Martha sent for Jesus to come because Mary's brother Lazarus was dead. Um, Jesus comes. He teaches on, on himself being the resurrection and the life. And then he weeps, and then he raises Lazarus uh, back from the dead. Um, in his introduction, Keller begins with this. He begins with this. Mary and Martha were facing the same problem we face today. They were looking at a tragedy and saying, Where were you, Lord, in all of this? Where are you, Lord, in all of this? How do we make sense of this? Is the question they're asking. Jesus moves through the ruins with four things. Truth, tears, anger, and finally, grace. Firstly, here's the disposition, the posture of the Christian in times like this. The tears of Jesus. We look to the tears of Jesus. What do we learn from them? When Jesus teaches Mary... She asks him a major theological question. She says, Lord, why weren't you here? Why weren't you here? You could have stopped this. You could stop what has happened in Israel. She asked him a question, but he couldn't even speak. He just wept. He didn't give a quick answer. He didn't try and explain theologically what was happening. He just wept. He is troubled. He is deeply moved. I would ask the question of us. When devastations occur, are we asking the Holy Spirit to lead us in the same heart posture to be troubled, to be moved to tears? Because he is perfect, because he is perfect love, Jesus refuses to close his heart, even for 10 minutes. He does not, ref he does not refuse to enter in. He doesn't say, like, there's, there's too much grief or there's too much pain. He goes in. Jesus goes in. Are you, are you going in when, when, when trouble comes, when horrific things occur? 
Are, are you willing to go in? When personal, national, global tragedy hits, when devastations occur, are we, the church, willing to go in to weep? Secondly, the anger of Jesus. The second thing we learn about suffering, we learn from the anger of Jesus. Do you notice anything in the text that indicates that Jesus was angry? Yes, we do. In verse 33, when Jesus saw Mary and others weeping, it says, he was deeply moved in spirit, and it says he was troubled. Fascinating. Pay attention to this. The original Greek word means to quake with rage. In verse 38, as Jesus came to the tomb, it says he was deeply moved. This also means to roar or to snort with anger like a lion or a bull. And so the best translation would be, bellowing with anger, he came to the tomb that Lazarus was dead. Do we yell out to God in anger for the loss of innocent life? I think you have permission to do that. It's good and right for us to feel this rage towards injustice. Do you? Thirdly, the truth of Jesus. Jesus says to Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? He looks at Martha and says, I can give you this power, but do you believe that I am the Son of God who has come into the world, that I am the one from heaven who has come down to this planet to die and to rise again? Do you believe this about Jesus? He has a reason to ask, do you believe me? Because unless you believe that he is the Son of God who has come into the world, you don't have access to this incredible thing that I'm about to tell you about, namely resurrection. And Martha responds with the correct answer, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Do you? Do you? I hope you do. What I'm about to tell you is contingent on you having a personal encounter in faith with the Son of God, the Messiah. Here's what he offers. And I love this. Keller says he offers not a consolation but a resurrection. Not a consolation, but a resurrection. What do I mean by that? Jesus does not say, if you trust me, someday I will take all this away from you. He does not say, someday if you believe in me, well, he does say, sorry, someday if, if you believe in me, I will take you to a wonderful place where your soul will be able to forget about all of this. Why? Because I do not offer a consolation I offer a resurrection. And lastly, the disposition of the Christian is to lean and depend on and cry out for and hope in and speak of and tell of and share of and celebrate the grace of Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus knew the only way to bring Lazarus out of the grave was to bury himself. The only way he'd get Lazarus out of, the, out of death was for him to be killed. He knew that, and that is the picture of the gospel here. We have a God who is so committed to ending suffering 
and death, that he was willing to come into a world and share in that suffering and death. Keller says there are an awful lot of people praying to a general God. I am sure that God somehow is loving us in all of this. What we depend on, though, is that God specifically lost his son in an unjust attack. Only Christianity tells us that God has suffered. That God lost his son in an unjust attack. When somebody says to me, I don't know that God cares about our suffering, I say, yes, he does. They say, how do you know If I were in any other religion, I wouldn't know what to say, but the proof is that he himself was willing to suffer. I don't know why he hasn't ended suffering and evil by now, but the fact that he was willing to be involved and that he himself got involved is proof that he must have some good reason. Church, he cares. He is not remote. He is not away from us. And so may we cry out to God to come quickly to heal his land. May that be the, the first, the first disposition of our, of our hearts, the first response, the words that come from our mouths as Christians. May we not grow weary of this, for he has promised, he has promised, I will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's our hope. That's our hope. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, you said, peace be still. And the storm was stilled. What an incredible, incredible picture that is. You said, peace be still. And the waves were calmed. The storm was stilled. Let that same peace, let your peace fill Israel and Gaza. Lord, hear us. We believe just as you raised Lazarus from the dead and then conquered death yourself, there is hope and power in your name to do this. So we ask that in power you would come quickly, heal your land, heal your people. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We cling to it this morning. We pray all of this In the name of Jesus, amen, amen, and amen.